Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. No my Hiramar Kiara and welcome to our Books and Beyond Literary Lounge with Alison and Inika. Kia ora Inika. Lovely to be back here in our other office, our second office. Now, look, on today's show, we're going to be talking about what we've been reading and what's on our to-be-read lists. And then we've got one or two or maybe three hot tips to share with you along the way. I know. We could just about do a whole show on them. Now, look, I wanted to jump into one that I've just been reading. It's really quite an amazing book. And it's called Permafrost, uh, written by... Eva Baltasar, um, who's a Spanish writer, and so it's been translated from the Catalan by Julia Sanchez. Now, Permafrost, it's a prize-winning debut novel um, that was actually a word-of-mouth smash hit in Spain when it was published um, by Eva Baltasar in 2018. Now, she's an acclaimed poet. She's got, I think, 10 volumes of poetry under her belt. So, um, first published um, in the Catalan in um, 2018, but the English translation has just come out this year. And it's a compact book, which you and I like. Um, it's only like 128 pages or so. But, it, gee, it packs quite a punch, let me tell you. So now, um, Eva Balthasar has been described by some as a kind of like a Catalan Dorothy Parker. Mm. Um, so she's witty, she's acerbic, ironic and very caustic. <laughs> so when I was reading all those words, I had a chemistry question in my head for myself, I guess. Um, can you have, is it possible to be acerbic? And also caustic. Yes. <laughs> now that's a good question. It's yes. not one to ask somebody like me who did not do well in science. Yes. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so, um, but maybe in well, she obviously obviously is possible. So that's cool. I guess it is. But maybe in the lab, um, it's not chemistry one hundred and one. But um, yeah, but blue, we'll red. Yes, it's the blue purple. red. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So anyway, um, getting back to permafrost. The narrator is a kick-ass lesbian um, who's quite inwardly focused and her outer shell is permanently frozen. So I guess that's where the permafrost comes mm. in. And so there's never... It's like there's no way of reaching that tender, warm core of her being. Mm. And now they um, never uh, name the narrator, so she's remains unknown. But we follow her from her adolescence through to her 40s um, as she searches for meaning um, at home and, and abroad. Mm. Now, look, I do need to include a content warning here um, because all her relationships with her family, her friends, her romantic partners etc. They're all fractured and um, in parts of the book she questions whether life is worth living and um, I don't really even want to describe, there's a couple of scenes that, yeah, let's let's just say you, you want to be in quite a good space to to it's go there. always good to know, yeah, yeah before I think you dive in. Yeah, mm. I think it's quite good to, to, to know that. Um, so anyway, 
In the search for meaning, she moves from Barcelona to Belgium and then comes back. Then she goes to Scotland and then um, arrives back in Barcelona. And but um, so there's this sort of search and the sort of desperate desperation in, in some aspects. But ironically, her queerness becomes a, a salvation and she slowly discovers the joy of, of being alive, basically, mm. and also that she doesn't have to be bound by heteronormative drudgery, which, and that's the word she uses, and also sort of the emptiness of middle-class values mm. or the perceived emptiness. Now, I'm not, I don't think I'm really giving away any plot details here because there's plenty of action that I, that I haven't mentioned the book is amazing, I must say. Um, yeah. But I really, I don't think it's going to be everyone's cup of tea. Sure. Um, but the prose is just beautiful. You can really tell that the writer is a is a poet. Um, it's raw, it's emotional. Perhaps it's a bit too in your face for some readers. Um, I was sort of thinking this morning, maybe it doesn't pass the mum test. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure about that. But um, it's bold, it's unapologetic, and I've, apparently there's talk of a sequel right. to it, which could be great. Is, so, it, um, is it a first novel? Yes, it is. Right. First novel, um, even though she's... Prolific pub- yes, published yeah. ah. So I'd love to see what comes next. Um, yeah, so, and I sort of think I probably recommend it more to younger readers, you know, perhaps millennial readers. But then huge generalisation because there's heaps of kick-ass grandmas out there. Okay? <laughs> so, um, but if you want to challenge your worldview, this this one's for you. It sounds very good. And mm. I think, you know, that shorter format as well does suit, you know, some younger readers who want to... You know, get a punchy, yes, punchy read, and then move on to the next one, and sort yeah. of sit with it for a bit, and then move on. Yeah. I think so. Yes, good. yeah, it's been been really well received. Mm. Hey, shall I jump over to my next one? Yeah, because absolutely. This is also about a journey, basically a journey to finding your authentic self, and it's a beautiful book um, by the writer. Um, it's a memoir by Kyle Newburn, and it's called Faking It: My Life in Transition. Now, it's just published. Um, Now, she's the um, prolific and award-winning New Zealand-Australian children's author. Um, And this is her first adult book, so her memoir. And it's um, an honest and emotionally powerful account of growing up transgender. So um, Kyle grew up in Brisbane in the 1960s and 70s when... And she describes a life that was much less sophisticated than these days. Yes. Um, and, um, yeah, a, a Queensland at the time was incredibly conservative, more so than it is now, mm-hmm. and harsh family life. Um, not a lot of love demonstrated, um, and there were very few books available to a child who had this constant gnawing feeling of, of being somehow wrong. Mm-hmm. And she describes it beautifully, but like a children's um, you can tell she's a children's writer because mm-hmm. she says she felt like strawberry jam in a spinach can. Oh. And I thought, wow, <laughs> doesn't that... Yes, it's just when your container's all wrong, yeah. you know. Yeah. So she describes a painfully awkward growing up period um, 
the school and family life revolved around sport and there were lots of playground fights at school and bullying and all that sort of mm. thing. You know, it really reminded me of that book called 14 by Shannon Malloy, um, which was also set in Queensland. Oh, yes, you reviewed that last year. Yeah, yes. yeah. And very painful um, look at, at growing up gay. And even though Shannon Malloy would probably be 20 years younger mm-hmm. than Kyle, but... Um, but anyway, so from very early on in um, her childhood, Kyle knew that she was a girl in a boy's body. Um, and she, it's so sad. She remembers um, lying in bed at night, sort of bargaining with God, mm. saying, I'll be the best person ever if only you could could change me into what oh, I'm meant to be. It's and it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Especially for a child having to go through that alone. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, of course, the bargaining with God failed. Mm. And um, so Kyle spent decades really trying to accept that she had a masculine fate, I mm. guess, and um, all the while knowing that that this was all wrong for her. But um, she does say that books and language saved her to a large extent. So anyway, um, Kyle travelled the world and met and um, married the lovely Marion in Europe and they travelled the world, they're absolute soulmates, and Mm. they eventually settled in a small part of rural central Otago in 1990. And the population of their town is 200. That is small. Yeah, Mm. and they're still there. So I'd love to know um, what what drew them to central Otago after travelling the world. Mm. Um, And then in the meantime... um, Kyle had, had become a very popular children's author, yes. as as we know through the libraries. With, her, you know, those great titles like Old Hoo Hoo, mm. and then I love that one, Kiss Kiss Yuck Yuck. I have that at <laughs> home. We love that book. Yeah, and so um, you know, and the, this love of, of rhymes and puns and everything, um, really sort of shows through in her her children's children's writing, but it also shows through in this memoir. Um, and now Kyle was in her late 40s, actually, when she finally said to Marion, I've got something to tell you. Right. You know, I'm, I'm transgender. So um, Marion has stood by Kyle, um, which is just wonderful. Um, and they've sort of gone through the transition together. Mm-hmm. But it's um, really interesting that Kyle says, um, nobody does this or claims to be anything for brownie points. Um, she says there are no advantages to being trans. And I thought, what a powerful, powerful statement. Well, the strength you have to have to go through that process. Yes. From, as you say, first inklings. Yes. All the way through the process. Yeah. And I don't think it's probably a process that ever really ends. I wonder whether it, yeah, and even though it's taken like 55 years, but it She's still in that process. Mm. Yeah, mm. as you say, it's a beautiful and powerful story. Um, any, and I'd recommend it for anyone really to understand the human experience, but particularly the trans experience um, and anyone that's maybe hidden from the truth about themselves and you know may not have discovered this freedom really in, in your authentic self. So highly recommended, very emotional Sounds wonderful, yes. Mm. Um, Carl Mugburn appeared at the Open oh, Writers yes. Festival with Lil O'Brien and Charlotte Grimshaw. Yes. So all those powerful memoirs coming out 
in the yes. last year. We're just hearing some incredible stories, aren't we? We sure are. Yeah. 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 So valuable. Yeah. Well, over the weekend, I finished um, a novel called, and I'd waited for it for quite a while because it's quite popular, um, book called The Mermaid of Black Conch by Monique Roffey. Now, this one's available in our adult fiction collection. It was published last year, so 2020. And um, I'll give you a hot tip right from the outset. It's also available in e-audiobook on Libby and Overdrive. And there's actually heaps of copies and the beautiful thing about this book, which I think, you know, having read the book um, rather than listen to it, but I would like to listen, listen to it again. It's um, it's got two actors um, playing the two main characters, and I think that really, I really love it when they have a little cast for an audiobook yes. rather than just one narrator. It actually really changes it up. It does, doesn't it? It yeah. makes it a different experience. That's right. And I think it, um, it would be perfect in audiobook, and I'll tell you why. Um, so Monique Roffey is a Trinidad-born British fiction and non-fiction writer, and she's based in Manchester. Um, Mermaid of Black Conch is her eighth book, so we have this one and lots of others in the catalogue. Now, I haven't read any of her other books, but I will be um, having read this one. And I can't say whether this is usual for her writing, but Alison, I wanted to put a content warning in for here for you for magic realism. Oh, no. I oh, know. thank you for warning me. Well, yeah. I know you don't like a surprise when it yeah. comes to that fantasy <laughs> real-life overlay. <laughs> <laughs> so one of our main characters in the book is the elderly fisherman, David. Now, he's recounting a love affair um, that changed his life forever. So when he was a young man living on the fictional Caribbean island of Black Conch in the mid-'70s, he had a fling, but this was no ordinary fling. His long-ago lover is a mysterious mermaid called Akea, and she appeared off the shore one day when he was relaxing with a smoke and his guitar on the shore, you know, oh, as you do yes. when you're in the islands. <laughs> now, hundreds of years before, um, Akea was cursed by the other woman in her village for catching the eye of the menfolk. Now, she was, there's this, there is this thread of um, sexual jealousy and sexual power dynamics um, running through the book. Now, she was exiled to the sea and turned into a mermaid for her sin of being too desirable. Mm. And now, rather than blonde locks and the seashell bra that we usually associate mm. with mermaids, she's got dreadlocks and tattoos that reflect her Taino origins. Now, the Taino people were indigenous to the Caribbean and Florida, and sadly, they were almost wiped out by smallpox and warring brought by Spanish colonists in the, around the mid-16th century. Mm. So, Akea is an ancient soul. Now, David's totally fascinated by her. From his boat, he manages to kind of build up a level of cautious trust with her. She's curious about him and he's curious about mm. her. But really sadly, this trust um, relationship um, leads to her become, um, and getting into a, a, a really terrible situation. She gets caught on the hook of a white American fisherman and his son. And she's dragged back to shore. And um, she's strung up next to Marlin and she's destined to go into a museum or off to the highest bidder. Now, David manages to rescue her while the ship's crew are celebrating their, their catch. And he takes her back home under cover of darkness and installs her in his bath. Oh. Now, once she's in a place of kind of relative safety and secrecy, she actually starts to return to a state of womanhood. Um, her tail turns back into legs. She has to learn to walk and talk again. And her sexuality begins to awaken. Um, she was actually a virgin, despite her having been um, castigated by the woman in the village. She was a virgin when she was turned into a mermaid. Anyway, she begins to fall in love with David as this trust relationship grows between them. 
Now, David, in his turn, he's undergoing his own self-transformation. He really cares and nurtures and loves Akea, and he learns to manage and separate his desire for her um, from the nurturing aspect of their relationship. And he waits very patiently for her to sort of make those first moves in the relationship to turning into a physical relationship. Now, there's a fascinating cast of supporting characters. Um, some are sympathetic and supportive of the couple and sort of maintain that secrecy around them. And there are others that are hell-bent on pulling them apart um, and and really afraid and fearful of their differences, um, of her difference, I should say. Now, each um, each supporting character really typifies a sort of particular aspect of that complicated colonial history mm. and the politics and the different cultural identities that make up life in the Caribbean. Um, this is a really singular, sensory, modern-day legend. It's It's got love and it's got loss. Achaia's passages are written in verse, and they're interspersed with David's journal entries recording his time back in that, that particular time of his life. And there's also a third-person narrative running through the book. Um, you've got the sounds of the sea and the forest. You've got wind and rain howling around the house because it's the rainy season. And you've got the skank of Bob Marley and mm. Aswad making up the soundtrack. So it's actually, yeah, it's a real, um, mm. it's a real sensory pleasure yeah. and experience to read this book. This book is also a real commentary on the the dynamics at play and the potentially damaging forces of the pursuit of love and lust and power in this really culturally complex post-colonial landscape um, of the Caribbean. Um, Sounds amazing. It really was wonderful and I can't wait to read more from her. Yeah. The next book I am currently reading, so I'm only partway through, but I thought I would really like to have a chat with you about this one. Um, It's called Cast, The Lies That Divide Us by Isabel Wilkinson. uh, Wilkinson. This is a nonfiction read from 2020. Um, Isabel Wilkinson is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, and she's the author of The Warmth of Other Sons, the epic story of America's Great Migration, which was published in 2010, and it tracks the migration of... um, of black Americans from the south up to the north and all of the complex issues that came around that. Now, that, that particular book had a big resurgence last year as a result of the the, um, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement oh, yes, in the last that's couple right. of years. Yes. Yeah. Now, CAST um, sort of carries on a little bit the research that was started there. It's a it's a study into the continuing inequalities of race and class in America, and for black Americans in particular. Now, the main tenet of the book is that America is actually a two-tiered caste system, um, ranking the population into the hierarchy of white and non-white, with value assigned based on appearance and of skin colour. So it looks at the historical and the current issues in the US, including the period before the states was actually the United States, mm. Um and it compares and relates it to the caste system of India, which has, of course, Brahmin at the top and and untouchables, which um, they have now sort of not rebranded, but um, the the caste of the untouchables is now called the Dalits, the downtrodden, um, at the bottom. She also compares it to the the deadly um, legislative mm. landscape of Nazi Germany, which actually took inspiration from the American eugenics movement and the Jim Crowlows. Uh, laws of the South that um, came about post um, Reconstruction um, that legalised racial segregation and sanctioned violence and murder of black people and inspired 
Nazi policies that, you know, would have ultimately led to genocide. Yeah. Now, I'm only partway into the book and it is over 400 pages, so I've still got a way to go. But I'm finding her writing style really detailed, but also very accessible. She uses some quite lovely um, metaphors to describe these complex systems and practices in a way that that does really help um, your understanding. So, for instance, she asks you to think of the word cast in relation to the cast in a play where everybody already knows their role, their lines, and where they stand in the hierarchy and the social order. Um, She also relates cast to the cast on a broken arm with the purpose of keeping everything in line and in place. Really interesting, yeah. How interesting. Yeah, see, I'd never thought of the words no. like that. No, yeah, she's, yeah, this is a really lovely, interesting way of um, putting it and kind of makes it quite clear. Um, she also takes some time to look at marginalisation of Indigenous Americans. Um, she looks at the Trail of Tears, which was a policy of mm. forced relocation, um, which particularly affected the Cherokee nations. Um, and Andrew Jackson, whose policy... Um, of, of removal of, of Native Americans from their land was um, was instrumental in mm, leading to the Trail mm. of Tears. Um, and, of course, it meant that the dominant um, caste, as she would put it, um, gained from... Uh, gained the homelands of um, the marginalised people and were able to continue profiting yes. from um, those policies that were put in place. Because they got the good... Land, that's right. Fertile land where you could grow stuff. And, that's right. Yeah. And, and Andrew Jackson was sort of deified for Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Um, mm. Oprah gave this one her ultimate seal of approval. It was on her book club list, and she named it as possibly the most important book they've ever featured. So there's actually heaps of um, contextual content if you want to have a look mm. at some of the information around cast before you dive into the book. It sounds. Amazing, actually, yeah. And um, I give it a lot of weight, if you know, with Oprah giving yeah. it her, her seal of approval. Absolutely. Yeah, because she's the, the right person to be be looking at that and, and appreciating yeah. its value. That's right. Yeah. Well, look, it's sort of um, along the same lines, although it's a completely different style of, of book, but um, this sort of segues quite nicely. Um, I've been reading um, this new crime thriller, actually, mm. um, and it's such an interesting one, and it's called Leave No Trace by Sarah Driscoll. And um, at this stage, it's just available as hard copy mm-hmm. in, um, in the libraries, but we've got um, this writer's other work in, in e-book form, so we'll probably will get the the ebook I would Later say the piece. Mm. yeah now and it's an interesting one for a number of reasons so um, I'll go through the reasons really quickly oh. it's the the latest in a series called FBI K nine um, which follows um, human scent detector dogs and their hum- oh sorry human <laughs> human dogs human the dogs scent. detect the human scent. yes the dogs who got de- it. <laughs> And they're human handlers. So, <laughs> yeah, so there's dogs are dogs and humans are humans. Got it. Um, but each book in the series can be read as a standalone story. So the other reason it's interesting is that Sarah Driscoll is the pen name of actually two authors, ah. which I've never been able to understand how they do that. But um, <laughs> So the, the two authors, Jen Danner, um, she's a researcher of infectious diseases in Toronto in Canada, and the other author is Anne Vanderlan um, from Texas, mm. and she um, works with therapy dogs, and one of her beautiful um, prize therapy dogs, um, 
trains with her and does competitive nose work. Now which I'm is, intrigued. Yes, yeah, so how interesting. I didn't know there was such a thing. So interesting. So she obviously knows all about the, the human scent detector dogs, I guess. Right. So I wonder if she writes those bits. But um, how they collaborate, that's a mystery to me, but... It's becoming more common, isn't it? it yes, it really is quite a thing, isn't it? Now, um, this is perhaps where it um, uh, compares to what we've just been talking mm. about, because Leave No Trace is set in the state of Georgia, um, and it's a contemporary story about some reclaimed land that's earmarked to become a big hydropower system, mm. um, and then um, the resulting controversy surrounding that. But there's a lot of historical detail that's sprinkled through the narrative about the Trail of Tears ah. and, you know, the forced removal and relocation of the Cherokee Nation. Um, and, um, you know, where, as you were saying, they were essentially marched to, at gunpoint to the new territory mm. and thousands of um, Indigenous people died along the way. That's right. And, you know, this was all so the white settlers could get the good land for growing cotton. And she sort of, the writer shows that the scars and pain from this shameful period in the 1830s, they're still visible and still playing out today. Mm. So um, it's a fast-paced, suspenseful page-turner. A lot of present-day detail about contemporary Georgia, such as the racism, sexism, homophobia, talk about gun rights or, or wrongs, um, hunters' mm. rights. Bit disappointed in the ending, but it does set itself up nicely for the next instalment in the series. So, Sounds yeah, good. it was a good one, actually. It's a ripping yarn, with, you know, with a bit of substance It's a bit of a it. murder mystery, is it? Yes, yeah. yep, definitely. Nice. And those dogs do a good job with their noses. <laughs> Competitively, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, on my to-be-read list for this week coming is um, a book called Big Girl, Small Town by Michelle Gallen. Um, it's a 2020 novel from the Fiction Collection. Now, I picked this one up because it sounded a bit like a cross between Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. And if you've seen um, Dairy Girls on Netflix. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which I lo- loved both of those. Yes, mm. that's right. But this one, I should say from the outset, is quite a lot darker from what I gather. Now, it's suggested that the main character, Magella O'Neill, is possibly on the autism spectrum. She loves her daily routines, doesn't like to break them, and she works in and exclusively eats from the local fish and chippy Mm -hmm. shop. Um, Now, uh, Magella has an alcoholic mother. Her father was disappeared, we think, as a result of the troubles. And her grands just died, I think, possibly being killed, um, actually. Now, she's, um, she doesn't really have um, close friends um, or a boyfriend. She, she is interested in sort of um, sleeping her way through the town a bit, mm-hmm. but it's not really a romantic um, kind of pursuit. It's more about um, for her own ends, really. Mm. Um, the book's written in the vernacular of small town Northern Ireland, so, you know, it's got that dairy girl feeling. Um, I'd really love to see the audio book in our collection. It's not there yet, but I hope it comes. It's narrated by the fantastic Nicola Coughlin, who stars as Claire Devlin oh, in yes. Dairy Girls. And she's also in Bridgerton, oh, in Bridgerton quite recently. Which is rather hot at the moment, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Hey, look, I've got a hot tip Ooh. for our readers. Um, do you ever start a book and, and then find that you're really not that into it? 
I do, I do. Yes, and then what do you do? How do you decide whether to plough on and try and get into the story or just toss it aside? (laughs) Well, there's this famous um, library algebraic equation that can answer and provide guidance around this dilemma. Oh, do tell. Yeah, so look, I think it's important for people to follow this. The number of pages you should read before guiltlessly ditching any book is 100 minus your age. Okay. So, yes, and I've had a birthday this week. So oh, you're rapidly doing the math there. <laughs> so, I mean, it's another way of saying basically that life's too short to read bad books. Completely agree with that. But now, look, I designed another equation. Oh, um, okay. Oh, I shouldn't have. Oh, I've killed the story because <laughs> by saying I designed. Anyway, but the number. You know, if you when you kids and your boys particularly, and if you want them to read and they go, no, I don't want to read this. Uh, well, the number of pages they should read before they're allowed to toss it <laughs> is, so you get 100, take away their age. Okay, okay. But then you've got to divide it by Avogadro's constant. Which is Which is what? Oh, 6.023 times 10 to the 23. So trust me, this works. <laughs> <laughs> you lost me, Alice. I don't know how you're going to manage to get people onto that one. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. And as you know, I never make up anything. No, no. Oh, absolutely the... The colour of truth here. Yeah, except for maybe at morning tea yesterday, I did make up a couple of things. But <laughs> no, but trust me, that one does work. Um, okay. It, yeah, so I reckon you should get your boys onto it. I, I will do my best. <laughs> well, look, on that note, to our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in today. Happy reading. Use those equations, I tell you. Mm. So, and take care and be kind to yourself. Haerera, kakite ano. brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. <laughs>